You could be seated. Well, we sing of one tonight. We celebrate one, uh, but we were ably led to sing of that one by Drew, our music pastor, and the choir, and these musicians. Let's give them a hand as they're heading back to their seats. Thank you, guys. We've been in a short Advent series as a church in the month of December on the theme of waiting. Waiting. We're all waiting for something. I don't mean waiting like merely being on hold or passing time until something eventually happens and it comes. I mean the kind of waiting that involves longing, desire, anticipation, bated breath. We all know what it means to wait like that. Whether it's kids waiting for Christmas morning to finally come, or adults waiting for Christmas to finally be over, waiting for the new year to finally arrive, perhaps that'll be better than 2022, we might say. Waiting for that planned vacation that's already paid for. Waiting for retirement. Or waiting to get married. Waiting to have children. Waiting for the pregnancy to finally be done. Waiting to graduate. Waiting for that college admissions letter to arrive in the mail. These are all really good things to wait for. But what do we wait for most? What do we long for most? What do we think about when you don't have to think about anything else? Where is your mind drawn? Or what is the one thing that if it would come, if it would finally happen, if it would finally arrive, that would be it. That'd be the game changer for you. What is that? Well, Christmas is a time for us to think about waiting and longing. We're supposed to recall those of old who, before Christ came, for centuries, were waiting for that Savior King to arrive. And so we rightly turn to those stories surrounding Jesus' birth to recall the longing of God's people before that, but also the relief when some in this story get to learn or hear or even see for themselves the Christ that has finally come. Their longing for the Savior in their relief at his arrival, should shape all of our longings as we hope for something greater than any of our greatest earthly temporary longings could ever hold. So let me take us to the temple in Jerusalem in Luke 2. Alex has already read two passages of Luke for us. I take us now to a third. Not on the night of Jesus' birth, but actually several days after his birth at his dedication at the temple. And it's a significant moment, not so much because of the dedication of Jesus, 
Well, that's for another time to talk about. But, but because this is the first time Jesus is seen by two very interesting people, Simeon and Anna. Two people who were uniquely waiting and longing for the Savior, but then got to see him with their own eyes. Luke 2, starting in verse 25. Look on if you have a Bible or on the screens as I read this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, if you've never heard of Simeon or Anna, I'm not that surprised. They haven't been celebrated like other figures in the Christmas story, like the shepherds or the magi or even the cattle. But they are indeed part of the Christmas story and an important part. It's a remarkable scene when we start to understand what's taking place here and what it all means. Rembrandt, the Dutch artist, was so taken with this biblical scene that he painted it or sketched it more than any other biblical scene, as far as I can tell. Eight times he painted Simeon and or Anna. What makes Simeon and Anna special is not Rembrandt's paintings. It's not even Anna and Simeon themselves. If they are not famous today, they were even less famous in their own day. Simeon and Anna come out of nowhere in the biblical story. They are not people of prominence like the high priest or some royalty or Athenian philosophers. In many ways, they are nobodies. We're not even told what position Simeon might have held in the temple life. If any, he's just there. 
Anna is a prophetess, we're told, yes, but she is also childless and widowed, which is difficult in any era, but especially in this culture. And they are both of old age. Death is not far for either of them. So no one would have expected these two to provide key testimony as to who this child was, just as no one would have predicted that God would use shepherds to do the same thing just a few verses before. Now, Simeon and Anna were special because they were given special divine insight into what was going on. They are special because they demonstrated deep, earnest longing for the Savior. They are special for what they got to see that day in the temple. They are special because of what they said about all that was taking place. What they sought, what they saw, what they said. Let's consider each of those one at a time. What they sought. What were they waiting for and longing for exactly? Well, verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. This language probably comes from Isaiah 40, which we looked at as a church just a few weeks ago. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And from that, Isaiah goes on to say, prepare for God to come. God will come to the earth. Get ready. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Isaiah 40 says, God will come to shepherd his people. That's what Simeon had been waiting for, longing for, living for. Or as it's put in verse 26, Simeon lived to one day see the Lord's Christ. The Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. That means Messiah, the promised one. The answer to it all. The key that unlocks God's plan for our salvation. And notice that the passage ends by speaking of all those who were waiting for the redemption. The redemption. The salvation. That's what Simeon and Anna were waiting for. Consolation. Comfort. The Christ redemption. That hope and anticipation of one to come goes all the way back to the third chapter of the Bible. Genesis 3 verse 15. God promised that in the seed or the offspring of the woman, one day God would crush the head of the serpent, the devil. He'd overturn the curse. He'd break sin's power. And the book of Genesis ends with that same kind of hope now enlarged and clarified. It's there from the tribe of Judah that a lion-like ruler will come one day and he will receive the obedience of the nations. It'll eventually go global. The whole Old Testament, though it has stories and songs and prayers and sayings of wisdom, its primary message is about this one to come who will bring salvation to the world. And the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with the promise that the day is coming. The day is coming. One will come like a, like a son 
rising with healing in its wings, and you will go forth leaping like a calf from the stalls with joy. But then it goes silent. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament in our Bibles. It goes silent after Malachi for 400 years. Crickets. All these promises looming as some of God's people still believed them, waited for them, and longed for them. And Simeon and Anna knew all that stuff. They were students of all that stuff. In fact, one of Rembrandt's paintings of Anna is her simply with the Bible open, pouring over the scriptures. That's the kind of girl that one day recognizes the Savior at the temple. She knew what came before. And in addition to all that came before in the Bible, Simeon had been given this extra, unique, special revelation, verse 26, that he wouldn't die until he got to see the Lord's Christ. Imagine living with that kind of insight, that promise, that knowledge. You will not die until you finally see the one that God's people have been waiting for for millennia. Can you imagine wondering every morning, is this the day that it'll happen? He's getting old. He's up there in years. Pondering throughout the years, what, what will it actually be like when I see this one to come? Wondering how he'll know and what exactly he will see. As for Anna, she's not been given that kind of special promise, but she too lived with that moment-by-moment anticipation. No kids, no husband, no problem for her. She was at the temple constantly, praying and fasting and waiting. In days when many Israelites had given up on those promises of old and turned religion into man-made rules and power plays, there were still some, not many, but some, like Simeon and Anna, who were waiting well, waiting for that one to come. And waiting like that isn't a passive thing. It's not killing time. It's not being on hold. And it sure isn't trying to think of anything else but the thing you're waiting for so that it's easier to wait for it. No, waiting like Simeon and Anna did actually thinks much about what's to come even though it hasn't happened yet. It's full of anticipation and hope and expectancy and eagerness. It's it's waiting on tiptoes, waiting with bated breath. It's actively remembering and rehearsing what God said of old and what kind of God it is that has said those things. It is simply believing, taking God at his word and standing upon it, though the wait has been long, it will not be forever. That's how they waited. This is what they sought. Until one day, they saw. Secondly, consider what they saw. What did they see? A baby. A baby. The Savior was a baby. 
As far as appearances went, it was just a baby. It wasn't a glowing baby. It wasn't a baby with a sunbeam aimed down upon it. Neither was it a regal baby. Not a baby with a little crown on its soft spot head. Neither was it wrapped in royal robes. No, this was the baby born to a poor teenage couple, Mary and Joseph. That's what Simeon saw that day, a baby of poor parents. So how did he know that this was the one he'd been waiting for? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just moves from the encounter to him taking up the child in his arms, blessing God, and then saying all kinds of grand things about the baby. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph's experience of all that? They didn't, they didn't know all that was coming. They weren't looking for that. They were just being obedient, doing what the Old Testament had prescribed post-birth. That's why they were at the temple. They weren't here seeking another moment of affirmation that their child was indeed the Savior King. But that's what they got by God's grace. They got another moment of powerful affirmation that everything that came before is true. What the angel told Mary about the baby in her womb is true. What God was doing with Elizabeth and Zechariah and that family in producing a miracle child who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, that's John the Baptist, God was in it. God was doing something big. All that was evidence and affirmation given to Mary and Joseph for their faith, but also recorded by Luke for following generations who would also stand upon those promises. Mary and Joseph had been through so much. They not only had the angel testimony in Elizabeth's word, in Zechariah's prophecy, they also had the shepherds who arrived. They had been sent by angels who told them to go find the baby born in a manger, and then they sang an angelic chorus about it. God was providing loads of affirmation to Mary and Joseph about their son, and Luke, again, records it for future generations like us who want to take it to heart. Luke begins his gospel account with stating his intentions and even his methodology for this book that we just simply call Luke. He says in the first four verses that he has compiled a narrative about what took place surrounding the life and death of Jesus. He says that he compiled that narrative from eyewitness testimony. He says that he researched all this carefully and put it together in an orderly account. And here's the reason that we, the readers, would be convinced that we would have certainty concerning these things, that they really did happen and happened this way. Now, you and I don't get to see the baby Jesus or even the risen Jesus, not yet, not with our own eyes. But we have this carefully researched historical record of eyewitness accounts written down 
and well-preserved, coming to us with, from hundreds of ancient manuscripts, accurately translated from the Greek to the English, and now right in front of you, whether you have it on a phone or in this book or you see it up on the screen. It's right here. And we're supposed to see from all this. We're supposed to see what took place. We're supposed to see Jesus in these pages. We're supposed to see the stacks of confirmation and unlikely confirmation happening all around the birth of Jesus. Now, if you're skeptical about all this happening like the Bible records, maybe you took a world religion class in college and the professor told you that the Bible isn't a historical eyewitness record, but it's stuff that the followers of Jesus made up after decades and even centuries of believing a lie about the resurrection. Well, I don't have time tonight to prove to you that your professor was mistaken, but let me just put this little pebble in your shoe that I hope will make it tough for you to keep walking around without working on this. If you were making up a fantastical account from scratch and trying to pass it off as real, trying to convince people that Jesus really was the Savior King, born miraculously, raised victoriously, wouldn't you write it so that those who were giving evidence and testimony and affirmation in the story aren't nobodies, but they are big somebodies? I mean, wouldn't you get Caesar involved in this? Wouldn't you get the best philosophers of the day? Wouldn't you at least get the high priest or the other, you know, fancy religious leaders of the Jewish faith? Get them involved? And instead, we get shepherds. We get Simeon and Anna. They weren't famous people. They weren't impressive people. I think that points to the fact that this could be real. We even have historical details like Anna's father. Well, who cares about Anna's father? Who's he? He isn't anybody except in those days written in the first century, you might actually be able to go find him or find some people who knew him. And you say, well, who gave Luke this account then? If, if this is a, an account of eyewitness observation, who spoke to Luke about what we've looked at tonight? Well, how about Mary? Mary was around for all that happened here. Mary was around after it happened as well. She's one of the founding members of the early church post-resurrection. Mary. Now, Mary could uniquely tell us that her and her husband marveled at all this when it happened. And brothers and sisters, Christians, let me just encourage you. Luke researched all this carefully, gathered it from eyewitness testimony, wrote it down systematically so that you would have certainty that it's for real. Now thirdly, let's just quickly consider what they said. What did they say? Simeon says, I can now die in peace, verse 29. 
He sees the Savior and he says, take me home, Lord. I'm done. That's it. There's no other box left to check. What an astounding statement. What a singular hope. I hope no one in this room thinks that any Christmas present you'll get this year should be responded to like that. I got the stuffed animal. I can now die. <laughs> well, the stuffed animal is going to get old and smelly and fall apart. The dog will probably chew it up eventually. And maybe, maybe someday you'll find it in grandma's attic and uh, remember some things about it. But, but, but this, is, this is different than, than that. This is different than retirement. This is different than dream vacations. Simeon sees the Savior. His life has been one of waiting for that moment. What else? Take me home, Lord. He knows who this is and what this means. This is salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Glory to your people Israel. Some of those sayings are just mind-boggling and worth your meditation on each of them, phrase by phrase. Jesus is God's salvation. Notice that. God's salvation is a person. It's not a program. It's not a plan. It's not principles to live by. It's not your efforts for improvement. It's a person. That's salvation. That's glory. Glory not just for the Israelites from whom these promises were first given and through which the Messiah would come, but these are promises now extending to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and to the peoples, the nations, the people groups, the cultures. But then Simeon's prayer and his prophecy switches to a minor key in verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. For some, Jesus will be their rising up, their hope, their salvation, their deliverance, their consolation, their comfort. For others, though, Jesus will be their downfall. Isaiah 8 predicted this. He will be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to some. Jesus is amazingly polarizing even still today. He's a cuss word for some, and he's the Christ and Savior for others. He'll be opposed, verse 34 says, a sign that is opposed. Indeed, he'll be opposed. Just read on in Luke if you don't know the, the story and how it goes. We've got the birth at the beginning, the crucifixion and resurrection at the end, and in the middle you get some teaching, but all kinds of opposition. They hate him sometimes when he does good things like feed 5,000 or raise the dead. He'll be opposed. But that opposition leading to crucifixion will actually be the hope, the redemption of those for whom Jesus is there rising. It's good news for them. Jesus died on the cross for our sins to take our punishment and guilt Good news if we believe it. As for Mary specifically, all this will break her heart. Verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul. 
And indeed, at the end of the story, at the foot of the cross, Mother Mary is standing there, no doubt, with her heart broken. Her son and her savior is brutally and unjustly murdered. But three days later, he would rise. Her sorrow would be turned to joy. Her heart that was crushed would rise with celebration and confidence and faith and worship. It's a good story in the end, it sure is. As for Anna, notice her thanks to God in verse 38, and then also speaking of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, giving thanks for what she saw, and then spreading the news to any who would hear. How about you? Tonight, you hear the same message, essentially. Oh, I'm no Anna the prophetess, no Simeon. I'm no shepherd. I'm just a guy who knows a little something about the Bible and wants to share it with you. And tonight, you hear it. It's been spoken to you. This word that many have come to believe in and put their trust in throughout all the ages. This, this message, this story that we will celebrate as Christians for eternity. It's been spoken to you tonight. What do you see? What do you see as we read from the pages of Scripture about this Jesus? What do you see? Do you still see a myth? Well, I hope that pebble really bugs you. I hope you just keep stepping on it. It won't let you let it go. Ignore it. What do you see? Perhaps for the first time tonight, you would begin to see from the pages of Scripture that this Jesus is not only historical and real, but the Savior, the King, the Promised One, the answer, the consolation, the comfort. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of good news for a world that's still really bad. How come he didn't fix it all? He will. He doesn't fix it all at once. And so we as Christians, we are seeking nothing less than Jesus' return in glory and him bringing a new heaven and a new earth, making all things new, making all things aright. That's our hope. That's what we're banking on. When that comes, we won't even need to see, we won't even need to say, I can now die, because there will be no more death. That's what we seek as Christians. Let's keep seeking it. And let's keep speaking of that hope to all who will hear of this redemption. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you reveal yourself to surprising people. And reveal yourself in unexpected ways at unexpected times. But when you reveal yourself savingly, it is an earth-shattering thing. It is, it is the rise for many. And I pray that would happen here tonight. I pray that some who walked in this building not believing in this Jesus, not sure of what you will do with their guilt when they stand before you in glory. Perhaps they would leave this place tonight 
leaping like calves from the stall with joy because the Son of Righteousness has come and brought healing to their lives. We pray you'd give faith, Lord. We pray for us who have come to believe that we would continue to see our Savior, to behold Him, to see more of Him, to love all that He is for us and all that He's done for us, and and to wait, to wait expectantly. May we do so by Your grace and for Your glory. Amen.